Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Mike McGovern, an assistant professor of anthropology at Yale University. Professor McGovern is a political anthropologist who works in West Africa and uses a variety of sources from kinship idioms to the aesthetics of state-sponsored folklore to try to understand post-colonial states within the arc of longer historical trajectories. Today we'll talk with him about his first book entitled Making War in Cote d'Ivoire. Welcome Professor McGovern. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by talking about your book. Give us an overview. Well, it's about making war uh, as a process, not as an event, uh, which is meant to put uh, the process of war making into the, the broader context of peacetime politics. And so not to see it as a rupture from peacetime, but actually see the ways in which it's connected with the way that people do politics uh, in a particular place uh, during war and during peace. And what are some of the questions you address in your book? Well, uh, you may have read or seen in the news that Cote d'Ivoire is supposed to be a conflict that's about religion, Muslims and Christians, mm -hmm. or about ethnic groups. And one of the first things I try to do in the book is to challenge that um, approach to seeing uh, the, the root causes of the conflict. In fact, it's got a, a much more complex uh, set of causes, which are largely political economic ones. Uh, there's a lot of money at stake. And in fact, the situation that we have in Cote d'Ivoire, which is kind of one of neither peace nor war, is very lucrative because mm -hmm. in having a state of emergency in the country, uh, one can justify all kinds of actions that allow for illegal uh, economic activities to take place. And what drew you to this part of the world? What gave you the idea for the book? Well, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Guinea, uh, the neighboring country. Uh, in 1989 uh, for two years and I was right on the border with Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire and during the time I was there the war the civil war in Liberia began and refugees started pouring into Guinea from there uh, and a little bit later I went to Cote d'Ivoire for the first time uh, and it was interesting because both countries Guinea and Cote d'Ivoire had French colonial legacies mm -hmm. Uh, they spoke French as a national language. A lot of things were the same, and yet the national cultures were radically different. Guinea had been uh, a socialist country, had rejected France uh, totally in 1958, whereas Cote d'Ivoire had actually uh, sort of embraced its relationship with <coughs> France even after independence. Mm -hmm. The Guineans said, well, the Ivoirians look down on us because we're poorer than they are now. Uh, but we'll see over time whether or not the chickens come home to roost, as mm -hmm. it were. And in fact, that's what happened, uh, you know, about 15, 20 years later. And part of my interest is trying to understand why that happened. And how did you do uh, the research? Um, what was your methodology? Well, as I said, uh, I had lived uh, for a long time in Guinea, mm -hmm. and uh, I did my Ph.D., dissertation on Guinea, again right near the border with Cote d'Ivoire. That research, uh, which sort of informs my understanding of Ivoirian rural realities, uh, was very much uh, done in little villages, no electricity or running water, uh, no cell phones or internet, and the ways that people actually made a living as rice farmers and farming 
cash crops like cocoa and coffee, mm -hmm. and the way that they related to the, the bigger state. Uh, in Guinea, as in Cote d'Ivoire, there were interethnic tensions uh, having to do with land ownership and land use. Um, but things played out quite, m quite differently in Cote d'Ivoire. So when I began going to Cote d'Ivoire, one of the things I looked at was you know, why those differences took place. Later, after doing my PhD, I was the West Africa Director of International Crisis Group. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I was actually doing active research in Cote d'Ivoire for about a two and a half year period. Uh, on and off, I would go there. I would also go to some of the other countries in West Africa. Um, and that's where I did most of the research. A lot of it was in Abidjan with political elites because mm -hmm. of the work I was doing. I came to know people like Laurent Gbagbo, the president or ex-president, depending how you see it, mm -hmm. and Alassane Ouattara, who was uh, elected in, in November as, as president but hasn't really taken power yet, uh, as well as a lot of the other key actors. I also got to know uh, people like the Young Patriots, this movement of young men who kind of uh, control the streets at certain moments. and. Uh, have very kind of a militant, violent street politics in favor of Laurent Bagbo. So my research was kind of mixed between this rural uh, village-based research and then this research with political elites and uh, also with ordinary people in the, the main city. Obviously. So basically it's talking to people? Mainly talking to people, mm -hmm. but of course I, I don't uh, I, I didn't do quantitative research of my own, but I use other people's quantitative research. For instance, on uh, the economy around cocoa, as you may know, 40% of the world's cocoa comes from uh, Cote d'Ivoire. So if you had a chocolate bar today, it was probably made with Ivoirian mm -hmm. cocoa. Uh, there are calls right now to, to, uh, to have an embargo on Ivoirian cocoa in order to force uh, Laurent Bagbo out of power. Okay. Uh, so I use other people's uh, quantitative research to supplement my own. Okay. Um, is it a dangerous place today to be in? Um, danger is always a relative thing. I've done mm -hmm. research in, in Liberia right after the end of the Civil War, which was much more dangerous. Uh, you know, as we saw with the bombing in the airport in Moscow uh, mm -hmm. yesterday, it can be dangerous to be uh, in lots of places, but it's it's not a, uh, a politically stable country right mm -hmm. now, particularly in the wake of these elections uh, from November 2010. Uh, there's been a lot of street violence. There have been people getting disappeared, and uh, there have been extrajudicial killings, tor at least allegations of torture. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's uh, an unsettled place, to say the least. Let's talk about some of the findings in your book. Well, one of the findings, as I said, is that it can be very lucrative to have this unstable situation of neither war nor peace. But one of my other interests is how do you get to a situation where a war seems to be taking off and, and ready to, ha to happen, and yet it never completely uh, takes off? So it's a kind of a frozen conflict, uh, as some people would say. Um, what are the reasons why you get in Rwanda, for instance, uh, a conflict that has interethnic uh, conflict overtones that really becomes a genocide, whereas in Cote d'Ivoire, it never gets to that level, uh, or it never gets to the level of a full-blown war. You have 
isolated massacres, and then long periods of peace in between. And one of the things that I suggest is that the actors, for instance, at the village level, a village chief who might be interested in reclaiming land that had been sold to people who came from the outside, uh, a youth politics leader like these young patriots who's a university graduate but has gotten sort of routed toward a kind of a mafia-like um, illegal economy because there are no jobs for university graduates in, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, and a political elite like the people who are at the heads of the parties. They have very different uh, incentives, interests, and uh, the part of the question is whether or not those interests ever get aligned with one another. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I look at in Cote d'Ivoire is uh, why the alignment failed to happen to bring all of these people's interests together so that they would all push in one direction. What you see is actually people pulling in opposite directions. And who, what are the parties? Who are involved in, in the conflict? Well, uh, one of the most interesting groups is uh, these young patriots. And a lot of them, in fact, the two main protagonists at the youth level <coughs> are uh, a man called uh, Charles Blais Goudet, who is known as the general of the streets. Um, and he's the head of the Young Patriots. And then on the opposite side, Guillaume Soro, who was the secretary general of the new, the new forces, the Force Nouvelle, mm -hmm. uh, who was the, the, the group of ex-rebels controlling the North. Now Charles Blegoudet is a minister in the Bagbo government, and Guillaume Soro is prime minister of uh, the opposed Ouattara government. Mm -hmm. uh, but it so happens that these guys used to be roommates. They wow. were both English majors at the University of, of Abidjan. They were both leaders of the student union, one after the other, during this period when the student union was becoming criminalized and was basically doing things like controlling the stock of dormitories uh, for university students and charging people a premium if they wanted to get access to them. Mm -hmm. And so they, rather than studying and rather than pursuing their degrees, they actually got involved in this kind of uh, violent student politics that had much more to do with economics than uh, with studying. Mm -hmm. And they themselves talk about the way in which this was their training for politics in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, they see the people ahead of them, the generation that includes Ouattara and Bagbo, as being the people who blocked their normal progress through education toward ordinary jobs. But by the same, time, uh, by the same token, those older people are their patrons and the people who have opened up these other possibilities through the kind of root of political violence. So what do you foresee happening? Do you think there will become a full blown out war? Do you think things will settle down with a new administration perhaps? What do you think the future holds? It's, it's very tricky. Uh, there are two administrations. There's two <coughs> parallel governments right now. Um, and you have the West African regional body threatening to intervene by military force mm -hmm. if Bagbo doesn't leave. Uh, and at the same time, you have this threat of uh, sanctions and embargoes on Ivorian cocoa, which are going to hurt ordinary Ivorians as well as the elites. Uh, so it, the, the situation has become much more fragile uh, in the last three months. Um, 
I would have said three months ago, very unlikely that you would have a full-blown war. But at this point, I think it can't be ruled out. I see. Conclusions in your book? Uh, well, the conclusion is uh, largely that um, we have to look at violence in its longer-term historical context to understand the reasons why people resort to it, wh whether they be young people or uh, political elites. And uh, in understanding that, we might have a better understanding of uh, how one might intervene from the outside to help stave off the possibility of a, a full-blown war. In the process of doing the research, did you come across any particular difficulties or surprises? Um, well, difficulties, I, you know, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. um, Just I the was, nature of the situation. Yeah, and, you know, at a certain point I was arrested by these uh, young patriots along with uh, the various security forces at uh, just a roadblock in the western part of the country. And, and what happened? Uh, well, I, my colleague and I were held for about 12 hours, uh, interrogated, brought to another town uh, where we were interrogated again by uh, the head of the military base there who decided finally to let us go but tell us to be gone by by the next morning. Leave the country? Leave that region of the, of the country and go to the uh, capital. Was there any physical violence? Were you in fear of your life? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, people were you just didn't pointing know guns at us, but no, we weren't harmed in any way. Mm -hmm. So does that um, color your, your perspective of the country in terms of, um, you know, how you portray it in your writing? Well, I would say this. When I uh, first had uh, a, a kind of a nasty interaction with the Ivoirian security forces, this is about 10 years ago, uh, I rolled into the town that I was trying to get to and got there very late at night, found a restaurant that was open, hadn't eaten, and I started complaining to the waiter. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, I'm from the next country over. I'm from Burkina Faso. And all that's happened since the soldiers took over in a coup d'etat, this was around 2000, he said all that's changed since the soldiers took over is that they now do the same things to people like you that they've been doing to me for a decade or more. Uh, and it gave me a real insight into the kinds of uh, grievances that a lot of people in Cote d'Ivoire had. Uh, and I've seen in shared taxis and so forth Lots of people get hassled uh, right up to the point of having their papers, their identity papers taken away from them uh, where the soldiers said, you either pay us a lot of money or you don't get them back. Wow. So in the event Cote d'Ivoire does go to war, what do you think will happen? Uh, well. Who do you think will win? I, if you could I, call honestly, anything about I wouldn't war even winning. want to. Yeah, it's not it's not a winning situation for anybody. Uh, what we've seen so far is that it's civilians who've come in for the worst abuse by mm -hmm. all sides. Uh, so it's not if anybody wins, it, it's a few political elites who get a bigger piece of the economic pie. Uh, but for Cote d'Ivoire, as a country, it's it's not a winning bargain by any means. Well, I guess we'll see what the future holds for that country. Yeah. Thank you very much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thanks for having me.
For more information about Professor McGovern and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.